Welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. Please stay tuned after the show for The Messy Bulletin Board, a segment where we promote our fellow creators. On today's episode, Rebecca discusses Buddhism and art with Kai Harper Lee, an artist from New Mexico. Without further ado, here's Rebecca Kroll. Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio, New Mexico edition. I'm here today in the studio of Kai Harper Lee, who is a painter and also runs a a really wonderful small restaurant, a bistro in Penasco, New Mexico, which is close by to where I live here. And Kai's had a really interesting life, which she's going to tell us a bit about. Welcome, Kai. Thank you. And including um, being a a chef at a really well-known restaurant, Greens, in San Francisco. So um, lots of lots of food here, but there's a connection, I think, with with creativity in general. So, Kai, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your background or whatever you want to tell us about yourself? I started uh, meditating when I was in college, and uh, I was actually in, in an art school, and most of my friends uh, that I met at school were slightly older than me and had found out about a place up in Maine that was a monastery. And I, a Buddhist monastery. A Buddhist monastery. Yeah. And I went there uh, after I graduated from art school. And, uh, you know, I was there for four years and found out about San Francisco Zen Center and decided I would go out to San Francisco and study at the Zen Center because it was... Uh, uh, possible to take uh, college courses there. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in understanding the background of the meditation practice and how the whole thing kind of segued together between a meditation, which is basically yoga, and also the philosophy of Buddhism interested me. So during that period of time uh, where I had been making art all my life, I stopped, and I was doing this Buddhist practice. And then when I got to Zen Center, they had several businesses that they used to help support themselves as well as to give their students that wanted a job a job. So you could say that I went from being, you know, a a painter to being a cake decorator (laughs) and then a chef. And, you know, I was taught how to do those various things at Zen Center. And we were told when we came that if we were writers or, you know, if we were poets or if we were opera singers, that we should suspend that and Mm. keep our focus on Buddhist practice. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know... So how long were you at the Zen Center? I was at Zen Center from 1976 until 1992. And it's a very long time. It is a very long time. Yeah. Um, And what was your daily life like at the Zen Center? Well, uh, we started meditating uh, at 4.30 in the morning. So I would get up at 4 a.m., giving myself, you know, a spacious amount of time <laughs> to take a shower and drink as much coffee as I could. And, and I lived right across the street from the meditation hall, put on my robes and go sit. And so then uh, when I was at Green's, I would go back home, put on my chef outfit. And hmm. we had a van at Zen Center that would take 
us down to where the restaurant was down on the waterfront. And so we were quite a ways away from the restaurant at Zen Center. Was more centrally located in San Francisco. Oh, so the restaurant was part of the Zen Center. Yes. Oh, I didn't realize it was that. Owned okay. By the Zen it Center. was all part of the same yeah. world that you were in for many years. So the Zen Center owned the restaurant for many, many years, and then at some point, uh, the amount of profit we were making did not work with, you know, taxes and our being a nonprofit. Uh-huh. So it became a corporation with other individuals. So part of it is owned by Zen Center now, mm-hmm. and it's in its 30-something year. So Yeah. Yeah. So so you've had a long history of cooking. Yes. Um, do you see connections with your painting now, the creative production of stuff? <laughs> I think what I got from cooking was how to work with people. Ah. And... Uh, I think what I got from working at Greens was how to be mindful, which, you know, you hear that word thrown around you do. as much as Zen toilet paper these days. But what it means is to be awake, you know, as much as you can, you know. And some of us are walking through life a bit unconscious, and some of us are awake part of the time. Mm-hmm. And some of us are awake all the time. I'm sorry for those people. <laughs> but... Uh, what it did in terms of my own visual art, my painting, and I also make clay sculpture, is that uh, I became able to kind of be more focused on what I was working with, in a sense. Like, I could juggle more than three balls at once mm. because I had been juggling for so long, mm. you know. Do you understand what I'm saying? I think so. So, you know, like, you're juggling three limes, and somebody throws a lemon at you. And if you can expand, ah. you can incorporate that lemon in with those three limes. Mm-hmm. So, and you'd have to be very calm and open to receive the exactly, lemon. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You have to be present and mindful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when somebody's talking to you, if you're not present, then you probably don't have much content from what they've been telling you, right? So mm-hmm. if you read a book and you're not present... Somebody asks you, what did you just read in the last chapter? You might not have a lot to say. True. But if you're present and you're mindful, you know, you're starting to notice these things. Like, oh, I just made a house in this composition. And what am I going to do to balance that big object out? Mm -hmm. You know, these two petunias over here in the corner aren't going to cut it. I'm going to have to add a really big dog or a car. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, it's just... I'm not saying that I paint that realistically, but that sense of how do we balance and how do we, when we're visual as artists, how do we work with color? How do we work with line? How do we work with shape? You know, how do all those things gel? I think a lot of artists would say that when they're painting well, they are in that sort of zone where they are very tuned in to what they're doing. And it's... I've I've wondered, and I almost hesitate to say this to a Buddhist, but I've wondered if painting itself can be meditation. I mean, I've I've meditated, and I don't seem to keep it up very well. But whenever I'm painting, I do feel that it is it is very mindful. You know, it is very much everything else is shut out. But maybe the fact that I'm still focused on something. I'm not blank, you know what I'm saying? So 
Could you comment on that? Sure. I think there's a couple of things you said. The first one is when you're painting well. Mm-hmm. I, I I think for me, the first thing that came into my mind was, how do I know when I'm painting well? Is that I know the feeling. And the feeling is what feels right in meditation, how those two things go together, is that sometimes you'll be sitting on a meditation cushion and your knees start to ache and somebody walks by on the street with a big boom box right. and, and your mind goes off on that song and, and you know, it's like falling asleep with a jingle in your head uh-huh. and you can't get rid of it, you dream about it all night or you sit down and there's something about that moment in time that's kind of exquisite mm-hmm. yeah. and you feel that way, I think you can feel that way with painting <clears throat> for me, yeah. since I was a child what I felt from painting and drawing was joy Yes. Pure joy. And that it just somehow bundled me up and cradled me. And mm, uh, That's a nice way to put it. Now, sometimes there are days when, you know, all of us could get together and collectively say, just keep painting. You yeah. Know, it, it will come back to that. Uh-huh. But that's one of the things about Zen that we, we call that um, samsara. Uh-huh. And what that word means is suffering, is if you keep seeking that lovely feeling you had on your meditation cushion or on your canvas, then you're suffering. Uh-huh. Because, you know, we can't replicate exactly joy, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think it's wonderful practice if you do some kind of painting or you do walking or mm-hmm. whatever it is. To me, I think... For me, cooking was definitely a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. And painting is definitely a meditation ah. practice because it brings my focus right. into present time. Right. And you're not... And yeah. you know, and when, and when I started out saying when I'm painting well, it is exactly what you say. You sense that you're in a flow situation. You're not... Um, you know, there's part of... There's a moment when you, when you judge it, when you say, well, that's not working, you know. Uh, but there's also long moments when you're just putting paint down and very just feeling present. And so, um, and those are the, the best. I mean, and, and like you say, you can't just say, well, I'd like to be in that state of mind now because it's just, but I don't know. that's how you become a drug addict, right? Right. As you, you, you feel, want something. You feel that way, you want to keep... Mm-hmm having that experience uh-huh. again and again, uh-huh. samsara, suffering, is that if you seek that out, you know, you are going to be disappointed. You negate it by seeking yeah. it. So, yeah, yeah. And okay. if you just uh, let it happen, with you know, it's such a, it's not easy. Neither is meditation on a cushion, I know. You know? Well, I it's, think you've probably had the same experience that I have, is that you're painting along and all of a sudden there's something cropping up in the painting that you hadn't planned on. Uh-huh. And if you are adventuresome or you're willing to be spontaneous and see where you go, you go ahead and paint that mm-hmm. object or that whatever that is i'm trying to say something that includes abstract painting right but it might just be abstractly it might just be i want more blue here or something exactly yeah so uh i'm working on some paintings right now i decided to make 12 paintings the same size 
And I said to a friend the other day, they like, what are you working on? I said, oh, just, I'm actually just really having fun painting whatever I want to paint, whatever comes into my mind. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but what I noticed is that every painting that I finish and I put it over across the room of my studio to look at it, has a glaring flaw in it. Every mm. single painting has a glaring flaw in it. And for me, it's been really helpful because I used to get stuck when there was a flaw in my painting. Yeah. I think, well, if I continue, I'm going to ruin this painting, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop. And when I did that the last time, I didn't start up again for three months. And oh. I'm one of those people that really, painting is really an integral part of my life. Uh -huh. And uh, to do that was really difficult for me. But I just couldn't get past this area in this painting that I knew if I worked on it, I was going to mess it up. So you didn't just put it aside, though. I mean... I mean, it's you didn't. You didn't go to. Well, you didn't go to a different one then, right? No, that no, was that I was just, it. I just it just stopped, and uh, so these little paintings that I'm making right now is like, I look at them and go, oh yeah, boy, I could really fix that. Oh, I could fix that, and I, I think, well, you know, I'll take these small paintings and I'll make larger ones, and they won't be exactly the same. But I know what their content is and what I want to use from each one mm -hmm. to make larger paintings. And what happened is, in those three months, something freed me up. It was like, oh, you can, you know, here's your finger paints. Do whatever you want. Make a big mess. And basically, I've just been having a great time trying things. And so what I've done in that process is I've started to teach myself different ways of painting that I knew about. Mm -hmm. Because when I went to art school, I was in three-dimensional design. I didn't take a painting class. Mm. You know, I took a painting class when I moved to San Francisco uh, at the Art Institute. I went because I wanted to see what painting was like then in Northern <laughs> California, yeah. you know. And so I took a painting class then. And when I was a kid, I took a watercolor class from a lady down the street that worked for Hallmark. You know, and that was it. That was I it. had no other, you know, skills. So for me to know how to make clouds or, you know, water rippling in a stream or anything, like that, I don't, didn't know how. Yeah. So with these paintings, I started thinking, oh, so I'm doing that. I wonder how that works. And I, like, look at a cloud on my mm -hmm. computer and think, huh, okay, turn it off and try making a cloud that I would make. Mm -hmm. And so it's been very helpful, you know. Just giving myself that permission to, like, do what I feel like doing mm -hmm. and not judge it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so now, going back to when you said you see flaws in the ones you're working on right now, but you just let them go. Mm -hmm. And you just say, yes, there's a flaw. Yeah. But I'm moving on. Yes. And that is, I think that's really interesting and valuable because it does, um, I know that, Many people, uh, you know, I teach workshops, I talk to a lot of people, and even very well-established artists have this inner critic that is very harsh, really, and can um, can shut them down. And so totally. it seems like you kind of said, uh, I'm not listening to that inner critic. At the same time, you have to be, you know, we all have to make certain evaluations of our work to know that it's not 
a complete mess or something. We were just looking at a painting here uh, that's in the studio and you were pointing out there's a repetition of certain shapes throughout. I mean, that's that's adhering to an um, a principle of design. Mm -hmm. But maybe you do that very intuitively at this point. So it's not uh, something screaming in your head. Are you adhering to this principle of design or not? You know? <laughs> I think those things are, uh, to me, are like riding a bicycle. Those mm -hmm. are my little skill set you know it's like i know when to ride around the pothole mm -hmm. yes and i just do it automatically good way to put it know? yeah it's like i don't know if you've ever taken a writing class but when you do the teacher will say we're going to write about this glass of water for four minutes mm -hmm. go mm -hmm. and then stop and i think you know with these small paintings what i've been doing is i go and then i say to myself oh yeah i i didn't paint inside the lines and that doesn't quite work over there, but you know, overall, this painting's finished. I'm going to move on. Hmm. I'm going to keep going and see what the next one brings. And so here I am at painting number nine, and uh, I feel that you know, I'm I'm coming along, like I'm starting to learn some things that I wanted to learn. So you're not letting that perfectionistic or obsessive side take over. And this is, I, I'm interested in this because it happens to me. And I, I, I do become occasionally obsessed with making something absolutely perfect in, by my own judgment. Uh -huh. You know, it's an abstract work. But just yesterday, I spent pretty much an entire day just sort of fooling around with this one painting and doing a little bit here, doing a little bit there, stepping back, taking a photo. And, you know, sometimes I feel like that's good, that it makes the painting better. But there's also an inner feeling of, oh, just let it go. I mean, you you really can become too tight if you persist with too much of that. So one of the things that I'd like to uh, talk a little bit more about in terms of Buddhism, and, and you've mentioned some things that have helped you here. And when we had lunch a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this, um, your time at the Zen Center. And there were some lessons there about uh, attachment to your work and the need for outside validation. And I wonder if you could say a few words about that. It's, it's quite interesting. Well, in Buddhism... We don't work uh, for praise, so I'll just cut to the chase there. Yeah. But in our society, you know, we're rewarded with uh, maybe a space with our name on in the employee parking lot, <clears throat> or even better, a raise, you know, mm -hmm. or your boss might say, hey, great job on that project. I'm going to make you project manager next time. Mm -hmm. But at Zen Center, that's downplayed. In mm -hmm. fact, it's really almost verboten. So, you know, I was the executive chef of a restaurant that was doing really well, but nobody ever strolled up to me and said, wow, you know, you helped us make a million dollars last year. Good going. Right, Have right. some more celery. Right. You know, uh, and I knew that going into it. I knew that and I understood that. But in retrospect, I look at that and I look at how we as human beings have been hardwired in our society to run on praise. It's almost like Pavlov's dog, you mm -hmm. know. It's like 
if we don't get a biscuit, then we think we didn't provide the goods. So if you translate that to, oh, that painting has a glaring flaw, I'm moving on. Next. Uh-huh. You can see how I'm wired now. I see so that. Yeah. I feel like I've been rewired. You know, the Buddhist practice helped to rewire me. Or as my best friend said to me on the phone the other night, oh, you were like that before you ever went to Zen Center. <laughs> you were a good You've fit. You've always <laughs> been like that. And now you just blame it on Buddhism. <laughs> so if you, if you put that ideal together with someone, an artist, who basically is relying on their the sale of their work or some form of success in order to make their living. Um, is there a way to approach the business of art with that sort of attitude or is that just contradictory? I guess maybe you hire someone to sell your work for you. Right. Uh, because I think I, uh, I think what this all aches back to is when we talk about how wonderful a feeling it is to make a painting. Yes. Is that that always was enough for me. Uh-huh. You know, so I, as I've gotten older and I live in a community that's full of artists, I find myself thinking, oh, I wonder if this would sell. Mm-hmm. You know, and then what's the next thing that comes from that? A little more suffering, right? Oh, it probably would have if you hadn't painted that building blue. Oh, I see. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I've had to try to work that back out without being, you know, Mrs. Humble. Because if you don't put yourself out there, it's like we were talking about at lunch that that uh, somebody was saying that you, artists, visual artists, other kinds of artists are egotistical because they're looking for praise. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why in the heck would you put your work in a gallery if you didn't want someone to walk up and like it and perhaps purchase it? Mm-hmm. I said, why would that be any different than, you know, being a chef and making a meal and having somebody come back to your restaurant again mm-hmm. and again because they've just really loved your cheeseburgers, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. It, and because they kept returning, you knew that that meant... You were doing a good job. So it sounds like you're saying that the idea of simply taking satisfaction in something is can be um, zen, I guess, <laughs> to say I've I'm I'm happy that someone wants my painting, or I'm happy that I've connected with this person over my painting, or something like that. But there's I know there are many aspects of art business that are much more competitive and difficult. Um, and maybe it is, I can believe it's a very healthy mindset to try to avoid the the suffering, as you say, the comparing yourself to other people, um, wondering and worrying if something will sell. I, I was watching a video about an artist, um, Pearl Fine. She was an abstract expressionist. Mm-hmm. Just kind of came across her work and liked it a lot. And anyway, in this video, she said, I don't make paintings to sell, and I don't make paintings not to sell. I just make paintings. <laughs> and I like that. You know, it's like, yeah, this is what I do. If I want to sell them and make a living, I'll do that. But it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be wrapped up in a lot of anxiety, ego, etc. 
Although it's certainly a challenge not to let that happen. So that's it. I think so. I yeah. think that, and right now we could have another whole conversation about where is fine art going right. in our society. Because right. I don't think millennials are interested in paintings like baby boomers were. You As know, objects, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, there's it's a lot of... they wanted to live with. You there's know. a lot more experiential type of art going on, or ephemeral exactly. art, or that sort of thing, rather than the objects themselves. And, um, yeah, maybe it's um, fading out with our generation. I don't know. A couple of my friends went to Japan last week for a fellowship for, for two weeks, and everyone that comes has to uh, agree to make a show at the end of the two weeks. Mm -hmm. And one of the women that went is an old friend of mine. She's a poet. And, uh, you know, she said, the first night I looked around the room and almost everybody was sitting with their iPad making art on it. Mm -hmm. And she said, I was astounded. But then she realized she was with a, a bunch of young people. And yes, things so change. That's yeah. how they've, you know, it's like no, they're not using Canvas. They're they're using their iPad, and to me, that's valid. It's evolution, mm -hmm. and I don't think it would stop me from making paintings on Canvas. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's what's happening, you know. And it's like anything else, yeah. you know. It was a long ride, and maybe the day of you know galleries everywhere will go away i don't know and, and you don't know? you sometimes think maybe we have enough stuff in the world <laughs> like why do we keep making yeah. stuff um i mean I've, I've had those thoughts and i've heard other people say them too and um i attended a, a sculpture conference recently in ireland and the the older sculpture that was part of this project was all part of the landscape and it was um you know, eternal, basically made of stone and things in the landscape. Mm -hmm. And there were several younger artists that had become involved in the project, and their pieces were not concrete. They were about sound, or they were, you know, based on experience. And so it's... Well, what will happen is, you remember when you couldn't sell a watercolor for any amount of decent mm -hmm. money like you could a painting on canvas mm -hmm. oh that then it had to be framed there were all these rules so the people that are working on their ipad are going to have to go through some of those similar mm -hmm. you know junctures in their work is this is an impermanent what about that well so for me as a buddhist impermanence goes right along with suffering, right? Because if yes. you go out and walk across your lawn, how many bugs are you going to kill on the way to your car? Mm -hmm. Right? So it's Let alone driving bug, your car. <laughs> bug families that are dying, right? Yeah. Or they're on your windshield. So I think that in some way, as long as I can keep painting, I think that's really wonderful to watch that happen for young people to watch mm -hmm. them find the yeah. medium that they resonate with. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I think before we wrap this up, let's talk a little bit about your work. And I will put some pictures of Kai's work up on um, the Messy Studio Facebook page. So uh, I realize that, you know, verbal descriptions of visual art can be a little... <laughs> A little difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I will, I mean, my my response to Kai's work is that it is, it is very, very highly personal. It There are recognizable objects in it and figures. 
there's clearly a lot of symbolism going on, a degree of surrealism. And but but more than anything, it just it feels dreamlike or there's something very um, sort of subconscious about it. So why don't you t- tell us a little bit about your work? I feel like you just say I ate a big bowl of Fruit Loops and went to sleep and dreamt a painting. <laughs> <laughs> Subconscious is a good thing. <laughs> uh, but there know, is a connection with dreaming. I mean, wouldn't you yeah. say? Oh, yeah. yeah. What is it people call? I read a term the other day. I thought, oh, that fits my work. And then I immediately forgot it. It was something about fantasy. Uh-huh. It, it kind of works. I think I've always painted with symbols as I began to replicate images and paintings. And some of those symbols are chairs, mm-hmm. which uh, to me, a chair represents the seat of the soul. Oh. And uh, what comes with that? Comfortability, respite. Uh, I also oftentimes put an axe in I see a, an a axe here, yeah. Uh, yeah. An axe symbolizes in, like in... Uh, Yoruban faith, it's uh, something that is the doorkeeper. You leave an axe by the door, it protects your household. Ah. For me, it just kind of cuts through the BS of life. <laughs> you know, I'm from New England, and everybody oh, yeah, says they, that a lot. <laughs> they don't suffer fools in New <laughs> no, England. <laughs> no, uh-uh. And then I have, you know, a ladder, which since I've moved here, it's become more of a Kiva ladder. But when I lived, uh, you know, back east, it was more of a you know, Ace Hardware Ladder. <laughs> and it's, you know, to me, it's uh, what's above is also below. Is you going up or you're going down, you know? Hmm. Most of the time you're going up or down. And you could say, well, what about sideways? Well, then I guess you'd have to build a scaffold, but I'm just sticking with the ladder here. <laughs> and then I oftentimes put floating small houses in my paintings. And those are really represent the soul itself. Ah. You know, and uh, I work with those symbols, and they kind of just appear. They're not things that I I think ahead of time, where am I going to put that ladder this time? And you're not telling a story necessarily, like... Not with the symbols. Yeah. They're kind of enhancements, you know, it's Uh sort of, you know, follow the breadcrumbs. But uh, when I started painting, I... I keep I do a lot of research before I make a painting actually. Uh, I have files that I keep with pictures of things that interest me when I, I run across them on the internet. I put them in a file folder and then when I'm getting ready to make a painting, I pull a bunch of different pictures together, put them I have a big screen, I put them on, I look at them and I see if they're still interesting to me. If they're mm-hmm. not, they go in the trash and I move on. But I take some of those things usually and make a composition, which I draw on my canvas very lightly. And it's something for me to start with. It's sort of like saying, oh, look at that beautiful swimming pool. Which end are you going to jump in? I think I'll look and see how deep it is. Is that before I jump, I want to have a few things in place mm-hmm, to kind sure. of hold, hold what I'm doing. And then as I go on, I... Uh, I add things or I take things away. And I used to never want to paint anything out. I felt like that was some kind of defeat on my part. Ah. And now I unabashedly paint things out and, you know, figure out what I'm going to do next. So so they're, they're very intuitively developed. And, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and color, they're they're quite colorful. Do you want to say anything about color? You know, when I was in uh, my freshman year in school, I was taking a history of art exam. And instead of writing my last name on my paper, I wrote the word color. Oh. And everybody teased me for the rest of school. They always called me that. <laughs> is that I've always really had a thing about color. And my mother would only let me have one box of crayons a week. I and hope they were, I hope it was the box with like 188 crayons in it. 36 box oh. and, and a coloring book. That was, you know, what my allotment was for the week. And... <laughs> I've always just really loved color. Yeah. And uh, I, I do a lot of layering with pigments and uh, mediums, mostly uh, matte mediums. You know, I don't like a lot of glossy because that kind of, you know, reflects off mm -hmm. the other colors. But on the other hand, matte medium has a little white in it, so it dumbs things down a little. Uh. But you know, not enough to make it matter. So they're yeah, very vibrant. Yeah, well, I thank you. Yeah, yeah. I paint, you know, with acrylic, and I before I painted with acrylic, I used to paint with watercolor with mediums mm -hmm. that were acrylic, and that worked really well for me. But as I've gotten into staining things more and using more uh, surface textures, mm -hmm. I find that the acrylics are easier to manipulate because the watercolors dry even faster. And in New Mexico, you've got to get <laughs> a running start because everything dries really fast. You know? I know. Yeah. yeah, I've been doing a little water-based media myself, and uh, wow, yeah, it dries immediately. And even the oil paint and I'm sure yeah. the acrylic paints yeah. dry quicker than you might expect. Um, so um, is there anything else you want to say about the paintings? I mean, I I think that they have to be seen, really, as I was saying. It's pretty hard to describe, but something maybe about the thought behind them or anything else oh, that you okay. want to share. Well, I think... I don't know. I, I noticed that other painters see the thing, same thing. I'm working on a... I'm working on a series right now. Well, I've always worked on a series all my life, but here's how my mind works. You know, this is why I have a minor in logic. I, I, you know, I started out when I was in my teens deciding that I would paint with red and green for a year. Hmm. And that was a real challenge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I've always been kind of thinking, like, how will I do this? Mm -hmm. You know, and what I, I really encourage people to allow at least part of their time with their art not doing that, not regimenting themselves. Because I think what happens is you also fall in the trap of, you know, how you apply the paint and, and how how the whole spontaneity comes or doesn't come or mm -hmm. goes. And so for me, uh, I got very much into layering color and using, uh, you know, using paint and removing part of the paint with paper towels and water and in, and really enjoying it, the effect. However, I realized at some point I needed to integrate that with other pa painting techniques mm -hmm. because I was becoming almost, you know, addicted to it, that what that would do is make things look all the same. But what I see now is if I take one of those techniques and it accentuates something, then that's successful. Ah. You know, but I'm not going to put it in the painting because I love that technique and I want to see it. And yeah. I think I think that's a really good comment. Um, 
you know, I guess coming from my perspective of teaching cold wax medium and oil, which involves some pretty fabulous techniques, you know, and they produce these wonderful effects, but to have some restraint about when you're going to use them and why you're going to use them and how you're going to use them is a good thing. It's like being a chef and you discover balsamic syrup, which is, you know, a few years ago, it was the, it was thing, the rage. Right? And everybody was also getting a squeeze bottle so they could make swirly gigs all over the plate and plop the chop in the middle and wow, it looked great. And then all of a sudden it was on the salad and it was on the pizza and it was on, you know. <laughs> and so it's the same thing. You know, it's like, what am I telling you as a Buddhist? Not to grasp. Uh-huh. Not to grasp. Uh-huh. Not to try to get that feeling when you sat on that cushion or when you made a painting. It's so good. Not to go back uh-huh. and pick up that squeeze bottle and put it on everything. Right. The, the first know? time you encountered the balsamic, then try to keep make that happening everywhere, you know. And I think I think also what you're describing is this interesting balance, uh, which I often think about between this intuitive, spontaneous approach to work, but but a balance also with a more, um, I don't really want to use the judgmental word, it's more like you're finding a balance with things that are more restrained or more controlled and um there's a there's a different balance for everyone some people are um more apt to do more spontaneous things throughout the work other people are quite controlled from the beginning but i think there's a personal balance where you feel like it's there's an energy to it you know you're not a slave to something that you've thought up and you're not a slave to um, just being absolutely wild with your I materials. Think it's kind of like you could look at a Mark Rothko and a Giorgio O'Keefe painting, mm-hmm. and you would keep seeing color fields forever with Mark Rothko. And you have to say to yourself, do I want to live with that? You know, and I would say yes, because every time a shadow comes in the room, that painting changes. Mm-hmm. But then I would also say yes to Giorgio O'Keefe because... I'm quite astounded at her treatment of subject matter Mm -hmm. and how her eye is so different than other people's eyes, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's, you know, it's, it's whatever it is that you get fascinated by and what you can do with it. And it's your responsibility to know when you can't think of anything else to do with it, not to use it for a while. Yeah, that makes total sense. When you're, when you start pushing it, or repeating something that has become boring in some way. You've entered a zone that is not really that authentic for you, I would say. So, well, I think we'll wrap it up and thank you very much, Kai. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. This has been really, really a a lovely talk and nice to see your work. I've seen some of it in the the restaurant, but to see more of it. And, Uh, That about wraps it up for this episode of The Messy Studio. Thank you. On today's Messy Bulletin Board, Kulawi Mountain Arts is hosting a travel workshop with artist Lisa Pressman in southern France. Join Lisa Pressman and Norma Hendricks September 11th to the 18th, 2018 to explore the stunning landscape and textures. Lisa Pressman has envisioned this workshop to be a focus on ways to use traveling as a source of sensory information that will get translated into visual data. K 
cameras or iPhones, sketchbooks and assignments focusing on specific art fundamentals will shape our France experience. For more information, visit www.coloeymountainarts.org and click on 2018 Art Plus Trip or find the link on the Messy Studio Facebook page or the description for this episode. If you would like your own bulletin posted, please contact us through the Messy Studio Facebook page. We do charge a small fee based on average number of downloads per episode, but while the show is growing, it is a great opportunity. These early shows will continue to be downloaded well into the future and will generate ongoing traffic to your website. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. You can find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. Make sure to check out www.coldwaxbook.com and www.rebeccacroll.com and sign up for the email list to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating and a review. Remember to share the show with friends and family and anyone you think will enjoy it. Thanks for listening. We will be back again next week with more art and entertainment and a bit of sound advice. In the meantime, embrace your own creative space, messy or otherwise. Thank you. 